and welcome to From the EBPL Archives, Encore Presentations from the East Brunswick Public Library. I am your host, Melissa Hosick. This event was presented as part of our Just for the Health of It initiative. Just for the Health of It is a proprietary health literacy program developed by the East Brunswick Public Library to promote health literacy in Middlesex County. To learn more, visit justforthehealthofit.org. Now, enjoy the program. Welcome and thank you for joining us this afternoon. My name is Kathy Chern and I'm a consumer health librarian at East Brunswick Public Library. This Lunch and Learn series is sponsored by Princeton Radiation Oncology, Regional Cancer Care Associates Central Jersey Division, and the Library's Just for the Health of It initiative to promote community health and wellness. Today's speakers are Dr. Edward Soffen, Radiation Oncologist at Princeton Radiation Oncology, and Dr. Philip Reed, Medical Oncologist at Regional Cancer Care Associates Central Jersey. Before I turn things over to today's speakers, I would like to ask you to please mute your microphone and turn off your video. If you have any questions, please type them into the chat box. Our presenters will answer questions at the end of the talk. Please be aware that this talk is being recorded and will be posted online at the library's YouTube page at ebpl.org YouTube. And without further ado, I shall turn things over to the doctors. So can you hear me okay? I can hear you. Kathy, can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you. Okay. Well, I'm gonna start. My name is Dr. Ed Soffen. I'm a radiation oncologist. Um, for Princeton Radiation Oncology. I've been practicing uh, for close to 30 years. And uh, not that I have to establish credibility, but um, I think I'm one of the few radiation oncologists in the world who has treated men with prostate cancer on everything from a cobalt machine to a proton machine. So I've seen a huge evolution in how prostate cancer is being treated and how it's being viewed. And, um, and it's been somewhat skewed a little bit in the last couple months. Now, probably most of you don't know me, haven't met me, um, but I have to tell you that before I went to medical school, I auditioned in New York to be on Broadway. And it's very hard for me to be in front of a group of people without doing something like uh, singing a song or doing a monologue. Uh, so I've chosen today, and if you'll, if you'll beg my pardon, you'll have to just suffer through some type of performance. So hold on one second. <laughs> this is Jimmy Stewart here. You know, a hundred, a hundred years ago, in, in 1918, I was a, I was a 10-year-old boy. And, you know, the, 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 the Spanish flu was, was around. And it, we didn't even know if we were going to wake up with a fever or not wake up at all. You see, we we just didn't know. We didn't we didn't know what a virus was. We were scared. You see, and then 50, 50 years ago, I had a an issue with my prostate. You see, we didn't even say the word cancer because your neighbors thought that you might catch it. Uh, and now, look where we are. Uh, we're 2020. We, we've got this little RNA virus that's around the world. It's, it's changing everything that we do. And, and some of you may have this prostate cancer at the same time. It, it, it's just, it, there's so much to deal with. But, but what I want to say, uh, and I guess the point is that uh, you have to relax about the prostate cancer. And in terms of the, the virus, if you just stay home, 
and watch the reruns of my movies. It's a wonderful life. That's it. So thank you for suffering through that. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to at least get dust off some of my acting. Anyway, uh, I want to talk about how the coronavirus, how COVID-19 has affected, uh, it's affected everything in life, everything in the world, and almost everybody in the world. Um, but it's also affecting people with cancer. And those with prostate cancer have two things that we have to deal with, whether it's being worked up for the cancer, whether it's being treated, or whether it's being followed for the cancer. Let me have the next slide. So a lot of people have gotten together in the last two or three months to figure out how can we um, manipulate what we do and how we think about prostate cancer in this era, where the three things that are most important, which are patient safety, occupational safety, and resource utilization, how do they all fit in together? You know, we want to minimize people's visits to healthcare facilities, whether it's a hospital, whether it's a medical office, because every time you leave your house and come to an office, you get exposed to all the people and patients and staff, the staff, the uh, physicians, the nurses, the therapists, cleaning crew, everyone then gets um, exposed to you. And so we try to keep um, physical attendance at a healthcare facility as little as possible for both patients and safety. And we're also trying to make sure that we utilize our resources, the protective equipment, the um, head covering, the gloves, the masks, which I have, the goggles. I've got one of these hockey face masks. I want to keep it as much to a minimum as, as possible so that when we do have sick people, it's really there and available to help us. So we have to balance what is most important to the patient, which obviously is staying safe from the virus and also having their cancer effectively treated, cured, or palliated, and also what is the effect of their cancer and their visits on the whole community. Next slide. So the general principles that people have come up with are that you know, we want to avoid as much as we can in terms of routine screening. We want to defer testing as long as possible. Uh, and in unusual circumstances, which I'll talk about in a second, we may want to do prostate biopsies. But you know, the um, American College of Surgeons and the US Healthcare Task Force has recommended that men over the age of 50, and even younger if you have high risk features, should be screened each year with both a PSA, stands for prostate-specific antigen. Um, it's a blood test, as well as a digital rectal exam. Now, if we're being screened every year, uh, there is really no issue in terms of delaying that screening until the pandemic is over or nearly over. So if someone was due for a PSA screen in April, there's absolutely no reason why they can't wait till June, July, August until it's safer and deemed to be safer to come to a lab or a healthcare facility. The same with a digital rectal exam. Much of medicine now is being done on telemedicine. I know Dr. Reed and I spend lots of time now during the day on the computer doing this type of Zoom medical conferencing and we bring people in only when we have to physically lay hands on them or give them therapy. Um, so, but if someone had a PSA and it was starting to elevate and there was some concern, we have to decide, is it safe to do a biopsy or is the biopsy something that we can push off for a couple weeks or a couple months? You know, prostate cancer is one of the few cancers where we have the luxury that waiting really has almost no deleterious effects on people's outcome. Uh, we often measure cancers in terms of doubling time. How long does it take for every cell to go through a single cell division? Prostate cancer has a doubling time of one year, two years, even longer. Only rarely is the doubling time shorter than one year. And so by delaying two months, three months, even six months, we aren't really 
putting the patient at risk for having a tremendous growth in the prostate cancer. So if someone has been biopsied, we may say, you know what, you don't have to get staged right away. We can push doing the scans off for a couple months. It's very unlikely that that's going to have any effect on the curability or on their outcome. Now, in some circumstances, we may find that the cancer is highly suggestive or it is highly suggestive that it's an aggressive cancer, one of those cancers that have a shorter doubling time. And we may want the urologist to do a biopsy. Now, usually the biopsies are done transrectally. So the urologist puts a probe into the rectum and then sticks a needle through the rectum and into the prostate. This unfortunately can um, introduce bacteria into the prostate. Men can get sick. There's about a three to 4% incidence of sepsis where the patients have to come into the hospital. And so what we're trying to do is minimize any risk to the patient by coming into the hospital, which is laden with COVID positive patients. And so if a patient needed a biopsy urgently in the very near future, we would probably recommend that it be done transperineally. That's where the needle is placed through the skin right below the scrotum because the skin can be sterilized with betadine and the risk of introduction of bacteria into the body is much less. So the risk of the patient needing subsequent antibiotics or medical care is dramatically reduced. Next slide. So let's say someone had a PSA, it was elevated, um, suggestion that there was cancer, the urologist did the biopsy, and now we have a positive prostate cancer diagnosis. Well, there are a number of ways that we can treat it, uh, but the question really comes down to, do we need to treat it? And if so, how should we treat it? So um, I know Dr. Reed is gonna talk about this in a little bit, but the three most important parameters that go into every prostate cancer are the clinical stage, the Gleason score, and the PSA. The clinical stage and the PSA give us an idea of how much cancer there is and where it may be, not just in the prostate or whether it has spread right outside the prostate through the capsule into the seminal vesicles or into the lymph nodes. And the Gleason score is a number that the pathologist assigns to the cancer. They look at the cancer under the microscope and they decide based on how it looks, whether they can predict behavior. They sort of determine whether it's a, uh, a well-behaved cancer, a very aggressive cancer or something in between. And with those three things, the stage, the Gleason score and the PSA, we can stratify patients into different risk categories. Uh, I like to simplify it by just using low, low risk, intermediate, and high risk. Now you can subdivide those a little bit more, but it basically stands for what is the risk of that patient dying within the next 10 years without treatment? So a man who has very low or low risk prostate cancer has a very low likelihood, about less than 1% of dying within 10 years if they're not treated. If we have an 85-year-old man who has heart disease and other issues, we may say, yes, we can cure him, but we don't have to because his longevity is less than the natural history of that cancer. Someone who has high-risk cancer, Gleason 9, a PSA of 20, bulky palpable disease, they have a very high likelihood of dying within 10 years if it's not treated. And so this risk stratification gives us a sense of urgency or lack of urgency in terms of their treatment. So if a man has recently diagnosed very low, low or favorable intermediate risk prostate cancer, he doesn't have to do anything for the next three to six months. In fact, active surveillance, which is a very reasonable option for men, um, many people choose that and they'll just have their PSA checked every three or four months and decide to treat when the PSA starts to accelerate. And that may be one years, two years, or five years down the line. And so for people who are recently diagnosed during this COVID pandemic with low, very low, or favorable intermediate risk cancer, we'll say, let's check the PSA every couple months and let's push off coming each day for treatment until the healthcare facility and our healthcare system is safer. 
Um, now, patients who have unfavorable or high-risk prostate cancer, they need treatment and they need treatment sooner. Those are cancers that can grow, they can spread, and they can potentially threaten that man's longevity. So for them, we will often put them on hormone therapy. Dr. Reed is going to talk about this. The hormones basically turn off the body's production of testosterone, which is the food that fuels the prostate cancer. So by turning off those cancer cells, by giving hormones, we can again push the definitive treatment further down the line, three months or even six months without any adverse effect because that cancer is basically turned off. Now, interestingly, there have been multiple studies that have shown that the addition of hormones with definitive radiation has a higher cure rate, a higher survival. And so not only do the hormones now help us push out the treatment to a safer time, but it also makes the cancer cells more vulnerable to the effects of the radiation. And if a man is deciding on surgery, uh, there's data from Johns Hopkins that shows there's absolutely no negative impact on their cure rate, on their survival, by delaying surgery for up to six months. Men who have already been treated uh, and were waiting to follow up on their PSA results, um, there's no immediate need for them to go to a healthcare facility or a lab to have their blood drawn. If they can emotionally and psychologically wait a few months, it's absolutely fine. Nothing is going to happen in the meantime. And then in terms of, you know, I mentioned avoiding and deferring, we also want to shorten their duration of treatment if possible. So for example, uh, when hormone shots are being administered, uh, they can be given as a one-month injection, a three-month, a four-month, or a six-month injection. Rather than having a patient come every month to a healthcare facility to get the one-month shot, we would recommend that they get a three-month or a four-month shot. It's just that many fewer times that they need to come to a healthcare facility. Again, keeping in mind patient safety and occupational safety. And then finally, in terms of radiation, radiation for many years has been given uh, over a nine-week treatment period. We give small amounts of radiation each day because normal tissues repair those small amounts of radiation very effectively. Cancer cells do not. But about a year ago, a study came out comparing five and a half weeks of radiation, giving bigger amounts each day for a shorter period of time to the standard small amount of treatment over a longer period of time. And there was absolutely no difference in outcome. So if a man is felt to be a good candidate for the shorter course, we would rather have them come for the 28-day instead of the 44-day treatment. So we are avoiding as much as we can. We're deferring, pushing out further, and we're also shortening the time of treatment. And my last slide. Every man is different. Their psychological and physical needs, their cancer is different, and so any decision that we make in terms of PSA screening, testing, biopsy, uh, hormones, um, and definitive treatment needs to be made in conjunction with all the physicians, Dr. Reed, myself, uh, the urologist, and the patient to see what is best for that patient in terms of their mental and physical health, what is best for their healthcare givers, for their family, uh, for their physicians, and for the community at large. And so this whole interaction of two illnesses, one that's out there in the ether, this RNA coronavirus, and this definite prostate cancer that we can see, feel, and, and palpate, um, we need to coordinate how those two interact. And I think this outline um, is, is a good way of communicating that for the most part, prostate cancer can be pushed further down the line until the pandemic subsides. And now I want to turn it over to Dr. Reed. Great, thanks, Ed. Uh, let me try to get the screen share to work here. Okay, you all might see my screen. So I'm Philip Reed, I'm a medical oncologist. I had some um, particular interest in genital urinary uh, cancers uh, and have um, done a bit more in private practice in this uh, space 
um, as I've continued through my career. And uh, I didn't realize that Ed had a performance all set uh, when you were speaking, so he sort of blindsided me. So you'll have to forgive me for doing my only impression, which is of being a black medical oncologist sitting in <laughs> So we'll have to make do with that. Um, so I'll try to move quickly through the slides. <clears throat> Just to give you a flavor of the uh, medical oncology thinking uh, regarding management of this disease during this uh, pandemic, and then leave some time at the end for, for questions, okay? Okay, so prostate cancer, second most uh, common cancer in men worldwide, 1.3 million cases. Uh, 350,000 deaths per year. Um, the US lifetime risk for men is one in nine, but uh, you're finding this varies significantly with medical practice. Whenever there is a big push for PSA screening, the uh, prevalence of the disease goes up because we're finding more of it, although the incidence probably isn't really changing, meaning many men have prostate cancer and are unaware of it, and in fact, don't need to be treated. And this is um, underscored uh, throughout, this, um, throughout this presentation. Um, the risk factors for prostate cancer, probably the largest one is age. It's very rare before age 40. And uh, estimates from our topsy series put the uh, incidence as high as 40 to 70% 40 to by age uh, 90. Most of these are clinically insignificant. There is some concern that ethnicity plays a role with a higher uh, incidence in uh, African-Americans. Certainly family history does increase your own specific risk, particularly if it's a first degree family uh, member age less than 65. There are genetic predispositions that have been identified. Um, for instance, uh, the BRCA2 um, gene ATM mutations um, and there's some suggestion that uh, high animal fat in your diet and smoking are also uh, potentially uh, contributing. So I'm going to spend a little bit on the prostate cancer biology because I think it will give some foundation as to um, what we do in medical oncology and why we're doing it. Um, the prostate cancer changes over time sensitivity to hormone levels. The main hormone that feeds the cancer is testosterone, which is the main uh, hormone for men. Um, testosterone is a type of androgen. Now, sometimes you use that word as well. It is a uh, male hormone, essentially, the main male hormone. Over time, um, uh, the prostate cancer can change in its response to testosterone. At first diagnosis, Almost all prostate cancer is sensitive to testosterone levels for growth. And at that time, the prostate cancer is designated hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, or HSPC. As time goes on, the uh, cancer mutates and becomes able to grow even if testosterone levels are low. And this is one of the reasons why you can't simply cure prostate cancer or control it indefinitely by decreasing a uh, man's uh, testosterone level uh, with medication. When the uh, cancer changes to be able to grow despite low testosterone levels, it is then designated castrate-resistant prostate cancer, or CRPC. The sensitivity of the cancer testosterone levels is an important uh, determinant of our treatment options and treatment strategy. <clears throat> Hormone deprivation or androgen deprivation therapy is very effective, but as I mentioned, it doesn't last forever. If only ADT is used, meaning if only, only therapy offered was to decrease testosterone levels and use that to treat prostate cancer, uh, you would find that over time, the cancer begins to grow again. And um, uh, hormone-sensitive prostate cancer develops into castrate-resistant prostate cancer. That's Cancer, prostate cancer that can grow despite a low testosterone level. It happens within about two and a half to three years if no other intervention is made. <clears throat> the manipulation of testosterone levels is a backbone of medical therapy for prostate cancer. 
And it certainly is uh, much more effective than chemotherapy, any of the uh, newer drugs that have been developed to treat prostate cancer. Again, it is limited by the cancer biology itself. The cancer doesn't change. And as it changes, we have to change our treatment strategy as well. You can uh, decrease uh, testosterone levels by a number of mechanisms. The most common is to uh, receive injectable medications that uh, decrease testosterone production uh, by the testes. You can also use antiandrogen pills that don't decrease testosterone uh, production, but they work by blocking the testosterone activity at the cancer cell. It prevents the testosterone from activating the androgen receptor and sort of a doorway into the cell that the steroid hormones use. You can also decrease uh, testosterone levels surgically with uh, orchiectin. This um, picture here is just uh, uh, give you a visual sense of where these um, medications are acting and their interaction with the prostate cancer cell, which is down here. This is the androgen receptor. It's the doorway into the cell through which uh, the testosterone or the androgen um, is able to interact with the cell and cause the cancer to grow. DHT is, D is dihydrotestosterone. It's another uh, more accurate chemical name for the form of testosterone that actually interacts with the cells. So when um, perhaps you as an individual or your family members or friends are receiving therapy prostate, ca prostate cancer, the shot they're receiving acts here. It suppresses uh, the production of DHT, these receptors are not stimulated and as a consequence, the cell does not grow. Alternatively, pills that you may be taking yourself, or again, friends or family may be taking, block the activity of this receptor. So you can use a number of mechanisms to try to turn off this growth mechanism for the cancer cells. And you may recognize some of the names of some of these medications. Um, So let's go through uh, the management of prostate cancer and its various sensitivities and various um, points in its first development and then uh, either cure or spread through the individual. So management of localized hormone sensitive prostate cancer. The intent here is cure. Typically the cancer is diagnosed by a prostate biopsy that's prompted by an increase in the PSA or abnormal prostate exam. And now you hear the word uh, PSA often, it's prostate-specific antigen. It's a protein uh, made only by prostate cells and it's measurable in the bloodstream. It is a, uh, a great um, adjunct to managing uh, this cancer. And we you know as oncologists, we wish we had something similar for other types of cancers as well. Because in general, if the PSA is stable or going down, that's good. The cancer is not growing or evoluting. And in general, if the PSA is going up, it tells you that what you're doing may not uh, be as effective as you would like. There are some changes in, um, uh, where the PSA becomes discordant and does not track with the cancer, but that is a relatively um, rare circumstance. So the prostate biopsy that uh, Dr. Safin had discussed, a um, needle is introduced into the prostate to make, attempt to make a diagnosis. This is the prostate gland here. Just to orient you, this structure is the bladder. This is urethra that runs down through the prostate. And down here, you would uh, enter the penis and then leave the body uh, for urine. The prostate sits right next to the rectum. And uh, it's one of the reasons that sometimes you may have side effects uh, in the bowel from treatment to uh, prostate cancer with radiation. And the urologist places a probe with a needle and passes through the rectum and samples the prostate directly. To describe the prostate as like a, an acorn with the, uh, the, um, the fat part near the bladder and the apex at the other end. What happens during the biopsy is they bisect the acorn um, down the center and then take two samples adjacent to each other on each side. So you're gonna end up with 12 cores. This is the most common way it's done now. Previously it was about six cores. Um, and the reason I'm going through this whole um, description of the biopsy is that 
we actually use the number of cores that are involved in describing the uh, prostate cancer, whether it's uh, low risk and can be observed. For instance, if you had just a small portion of one core that had cancer in it and the cancer was not very aggressive, the typical recommendation there would just be observation with serial exams and PSAs and intermittent biopsies. So this does give us information. We actually do count the number of cores and then give a percentage um, of how much cancer is found in each core. And when I say we, it's done by the pathologist and I read the report, but um, uh, it does give us some uh, important prognostic information. So the initial risk characterization of prostate cancer uh, sort of drives what we do in managing it. The risk categories, just to keep them simple, high, intermediate, and low is determined at first diagnosis. It's based on the PSA. The Gleason score, which is something determined by the pathologist, they're essentially looking at the prostate cancer cells and saying, is this very aggressive or is it not? The more aggressive, the higher number they get. The Gleason scores go from, in theory, five to 10. Um, mostly you'll see six to 10. And the lower the number, the less aggressive the cancer. Uh, nine and 10 would be considered uh, aggressive. Um, the number and extent of prostate biopsy cores that are involved, as I just mentioned, is also important in this determination. And physical exam and screening radiology, if indicated, will also help with the initial risk categorization. The risk category determines whether or not surgery or radiation would be recommended or simple observation. And uh, just to give you a sense of what your oncologist and urologist or radiation oncologist is, is doing when they're actually seeing you and going over your biopsy. Um, this table is avail available in a number of um, uh, locations for us as, as physicians and we are placing into uh, this system all the information we're getting. Uh, your PSA, uh, the biopsy uh, results and uh, coming up with a sense of how aggressive the cancer is. So for very low cancer, uh, often observation, no intervention. Uh, that can be done for low as well. For favorable or intermediate or unfavorable, here's where you begin to recommend uh, therapy. The therapy may not have to happen immediately. You can have a favorable intermediate risk cancer and still undergo surgery three months later with no issue. For high or very high risk cancers, this is um, based on a high Gleason score, high PSA. Um, for a large tumor, you would need to initiate therapy relatively quickly. Okay, so manage of prostate cancer in the COVID area. Um, once a cancer has been identified and risk stratified, we have to factor in the COVID uh, pandemic. The pandemic um, forces to choose treatment options that uh, avoid the use of scarce medical resources, such as going into a hospital, into a surgical suite, using a ventilator, and then sitting in the hospital uh, recovering while that hospital bed cannot be used for someone else, or as well, uh, you're potentially exposed to um, uh, uh, infectious risk that you would otherwise be able to avoid. You also want to manage patients that were in a way that allows social distancing by limiting trips to doctors for uh, treatment administration and treatment monitoring. And you also want to avoid significant immune system uh, suppression. So in practice, we then choose medications that need to be given only infrequently. Uh, we choose treatments that don't suppress the immune system and uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. And uh, for people who are under observation or have low risk disease, or we don't have a significant expectation that their cancer will progress, we'll put off intervention uh, for months at a time. And really, um, from our understanding of the disease, there is no real downside to that to the patient. And I understand it's very anxious to have a cancer diagnosis than someone say, we'll see you back in three months. But in many cases, that's a uh, correct thing to do. So management of localized uh, hormone-sensitive prostate cancers. Cancer is just diagnosed. It's still responding to testosterone. 
Options to allow delay of curative surgery or radiation without compromising outcomes. Uh, for low-risk disease, curative surgery or radiation could be safe delayed. We went through a few of these things already. Um, <clears throat> for higher-risk disease, you can actually suppress the cancer by dropping the testosterone level. At this point, even if it's an aggressive cancer, it has not yet um, developed insensitivity to testosterone levels. So decreasing testosterone will reliably decrease the uh, PSA and control the cancer. As long as the PSA is going down, again, um, with high confidence, the cancer will not uh, worsen. So how do we know that um, uh, delaying therapy does not decrease uh, a desirable outcome in patients with localized hormone sensitive mm -hmm. prostate cancer? So there have been a number of clinical trials evolving over the past decade or so, uh, determining what effect uh, decreasing testosterone levels have during radiation therapy or during surgery. So the effect of adding anti, um, antigen deprivation therapy, dropping testosterone levels to radiation, for locally advanced prostate cancer. So uh, ERTC22863 is just the name of a study. The, the, the take home message here is that if you do radiation alone with men with prostate cancer with these characteristics, you're disease free at 10 years at 23% in this particular study, meaning you have not had a PSA relapse or the cancer come back. I'm not speaking of overall survival, I'm just talking about the recurrence of cancer in this situation. Whereas if you had um, administered three years of anti-hormone um, uh, therapy, so antigen deprivation therapy, decreased testosterone levels, starting with the radiation at 10 years, uh, the disease-free likelihood is 48%. So significant improvement with the, use, with the addition of the hormones. In another trial they uh, called RADAR, they um, evaluated duration of the hormones. Uh, three years is a long time to be an androgen deprivation therapy. There's a comparison for a shorter time period of six months versus uh, 18 months. Um, the longer duration of therapy had improved cancer-specific mortality at 10 years, at only 9% versus 13%. So um, radiation plus hormones for uh, intermediate risk disease provides improved outcomes. So they, what we, they exhibit what we call synergy. Each treatment makes the other more effective, so like a one-two punch. So the management of uh, localized uh, hormone-sensitive prostate cancer in the COVID area, the cumulative results from multiple clinical trials suggest that six months of anti-hormone uh, therapy, androgen deprivation therapy, can be administered before starting radiation. Before starting radiation, and this strategy can also be used before surgery if you need to conserve OR time in hospital beds. The total duration of androgen deprivation therapy when used with radiation should be uh, somewhere around at least 18 to, 24, 18 to 24 months, ideally. Now, there are some salties here I'm not getting into, and one of them is that although you can stop the cancer prior to surgery with this strategy, uh, the hormones plus surgery isn't any better than surgery alone in, term, in terms of controlling the disease. Uh, the, drop in the hormone levels makes the cancer more sensitive to radiation and radiation effects, but it does not improve the outcome of surgery. The outcome of surgery really depends upon how the far the cancer had spread by the time the, uh, you started the hormones and skill of the surgeon. Um, so it can be used with surgery, but you don't expect the same improved outcomes as you do with radiation. So it's a management of uh, localized hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, ADTs, can be used to delay time until the start of definitive therapy. Definitive therapy here is a treatment that cures the cancer. 
either irradiating it all or removing it. Um, and as I just mentioned, you can use ADT to delay the time until prostatectomy, but cure rates have not improved. So uh, certainly if uh, therapy is indicated and there's a plan to perform it uh, by using a combination of medications, that treatment can easily be delayed for a good six to nine months with no real uh, adverse outcome um, uh, for therapy. So management of hormone-sensitive prostate cancer that has metastasized. So this is uh, really describing here someone who's diagnosed with cancer that has already spread beyond the prostate to the rest of their body. So men presenting cancer that has already spread beyond the prostate, adjacent lymph nodes, stage four disease need to start treatment immediately. Standard of care is to begin with the antigen deprivation therapy, uh, commonly um, done the medication called Lupron. It can be administered uh, intervals of once uh, monthly, once every three months, or once every four months. And certainly here, with the idea of encouraging social distancing, you choose either a three or four month formulation. Uh, it often is started with a pill that's an antiandrogen for a biochemical and biological reason I won't get into. Um, but it turns out that if you add another way of uh, attacking the stimulation of the cancer hormonally, you improve the outcome than if you simply decrease the testosterone levels alone. So the addition of a second medication to turn off the androgen receptor, um, and sometimes addition of a limited course of chemotherapy uh, can improve uh, the outcomes. So just to um, go over this again, this is the same slide I had up earlier. Androgen deprivation therapy, what you're doing is you're decreasing testosterone levels. If you add another attack on this pathway, which is to take uh, one of the newer anti-androgen receptor medications as well, and turn off the activity of the androgen receptor, you get improved outcomes if you just decrease testosterone level alone. But the reason is the, uh, even without testosterone, the body can turn um, other steroid molecules into uh, molecules that can stimulate the androgen receptor or some cancer cells learn to create their own testosterone. So if you block this pathway in multiple different ways, you get better outcomes. And how do we know this? So in metastatic hormone sensitive uh, prostate cancer, so someone walking in through the door with cancer that's already spread. Um, the hormone therapy includes now ADT plus another pill to block androgen receptor termed combined androgen blockade. This combination approach is better than just decreasing testosterone alone. Uh, and I'm going through a couple of trials here. One of them is called the TITAN trial. Again, men with metastatic disease, if you received androgen deprivation therapy alone or ADT plus apalutamide, this is one of the pills I was describing that blocks the androgen receptor. At 23 months of follow-up, ADT alone uh, has radiographic regression at 52%. And ADT plus apalutamide has radiographic progression of 32%. So if you are using two drugs instead of one to attack the same uh, hormone axis, uh, you are less likely to have the cancer progress on radiographs. And the way this is done is you start all the men off at the same point, you do x-rays intermittently, and as soon as uh, a new site of cancer is identified, they would have shown progression and it's less likely to happen if you're using those two drugs. Now, again, none of this uh, thus far um, has required any chemotherapy, so no suppression of the immune system. Now, it turns out also that if you have um, metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, if you use chemotherapy upfront, you can also improve outcomes. Um, in uh, uh, the trial I'm going to describe, the charted trial, 
men who were just diagnosed received six cycles of a chemotherapy drug called docetaxel. This was added to antigen deprivation therapy. Okay. If you received ADT alone, the median time to progression of your disease was 12 months. If you used the ADT plus the chemotherapy in the beginning, right when you were first diagnosed within a few months, the median time to progression was prolonged to 20 months. Overall survival did improve with the addition of chemotherapy. And the benefit was most pronounced in men who had higher volume disease, meaning at least uh, four bone metastases, and one of them was outside of the spine or pelvis, or had metastasis in a, in a solid organ. Uh, the reason this is, I'm mentioning this whole strategy, it's a uh, relatively new change in recommendations from oncology. Five years ago, you did not see chemotherapy for prostate cancer until you had exhausted all of our tricks to keep the hormone levels low and prevent the cancer from going just by manipulating the hormones. But now it turns out that if you give chemotherapy in front, you can actually improve outcomes uh, down the road, which was um, sort of a paradigm shift. Now, this of course occurs right when there is a pandemic uh, going on and uh, we're more concerned now of the past several months to suppress someone's immune therapy, sorry, immune system than we were say a year ago with the same information. <clears throat> so now management of hormone sensitive metastatic prostate cancer in the COVID area. Offering chemotherapy upfront has taken into account multiple factors that might limit the benefit from the chemotherapy. And this is also present whether or not um, there's a pandemic going on. We always have to consider whether other medical conditions might decrease individuals' tolerance to chemotherapy, such as a bad heart or lung disease. Advanced age also makes it more difficult to get through uh, chemotherapy. Um, does the patient have adequate social supports for treatment? You have to come into the office once a week, three weeks for treatment. You then have to recover from treatment. You get your blood monitored in between each cycle as well. So there are there are logistical problems that not everyone can surmount in receiving chemotherapy. Um, now, we should also note that similar to the use of radiation and surgery, but to a lesser extent, you can actually delay the start of chemotherapy for a good two to three months after you started the androgen deprivation therapy if you want to you know, get through a bit of this um, pandemic to a point where uh, the virus is, isn't so endemic in the population. <clears throat> But ultimately, what are, what are oncologists doing? We're giving preference to hormone-only based treatment options. So um, unless someone at very high risk disease was very fit, when they come in the door with metastatic uh, prostate cancer, you give more preference to using androgen deprivation therapy um, with a shot, and then you add a pill, just to keep it simple, a shot and a pill. Um, you would consider chemotherapy plus the androgen deprivation therapy uh, in men who are fit, had high volume disease, and uh, you felt to tolerate the immune suppression with chemotherapy. And that being said, you know, it's, it's a relatively limited um, number of treatments, it's only six treatments of chemotherapy, and this particular uh, chemotherapy agent is moderately immunosuppressive. So um, in most circumstances, uh, unless, they're extenuating um, concerns. It's reasonable to do the chemotherapy up front, as long as you've had the discussion and everyone understands what, what's going to be accomplished and what the risks are. So metastatic cancer exists in prostate cancer. So now we're moving forward and the cancer has spread beyond the prostate, so it's metastatic. It has also evolved to be able to grow without testosterone. This is the most difficult uh, type of prostate cancer to manage because your treatment options are becoming fewer and fewer. You've gone through your tricks with decreasing hormone levels. And the patient may have had either radiation or surgery at first diagnosis. And this may be you know, eight or 10 years since they were diagnosed. Um, but now the cancer has evolved to grow without testosterone. What are your options? Again, there are still some non-chemotherapy uh, options. Um, there is an immune 
uh, therapy called uh, ProVent. Some of you may be aware of or, or CPLUS-LT. That's the uh, generic name for it. It's a form of active immune therapy. You would uh, remove biphoresis. Uh, it's, it's a procedure where you remove blood cells and leave most of the rest of the volume of the blood in the body. Um, you remove some immune system cells, train them to fight the prostate cancer, and then give them back to the same individual. Uh, preparing the product takes about three days, and you can do uh, um, three treatments. Um, it is effective therapy, uh, but it's, it's a little bit complicated and does require some logistical uh, hurdles to be, to be uh, um, jumped. Um, there's radium-223. This is for men with metastatic uh, prostate cancer that's primarily bone. It is a uh, radionucleotide that can be um, administered as a treatment once per month, typically six uh, treatments. When used earlier in disease before someone has had significant chemotherapy, it tends to be less immune system suppressive than more conventional chemotherapy, but still uh, provides um, effective management of uh, prostate cancer that's primarily in the bone. It does have a survival advantage associated with it. There are new oral chemotherapy drugs called PARP inhibitors that may be sometimes used. These drugs are more commonly used in ovarian cancer, but with certain genetic changes such as BRCA uh, uh, mutations, um, they can be quite effective in prostate cancer as well. Albeit the response rates here can be relatively low in aggregate. You're looking at maybe 70-10% of men may get a response with this. Then there's certainly one of the men more conventional chemotherapy that can be used as needed as well. Okay. And we do have some clinical trials that are available, uh, some of which use immune therapy, plus other small molecule uh, drugs, pills, essentially, uh, that may be available in this space as well for men who've had uh, disease that's become castrate resistant. So again, imagine a prostate cancer the COVID area. You select treatment options that avoid the use of scarce medical resources, such as hospital beds, ventilators that are used for elective surgery. Allow social distancing by limiting trips to the doctor's office. If you're in complicated therapy that requires significant lab work and close monitoring, those would be avoided if, if a acceptable alternative is available and you avoid significant suppression of the immune system. And I think that's it. Okay. See, are there any questions? Kathy, are you there to moderate any questions? Yes, so I don't see any questions except for who's Jimmy Stewart, but that person found the answer, so. Well, they must be younger than 50 years, so. Well, you know, I thank you for um, dating yourself by actually mentioning cobalt machine. Uh, yeah. And we have a question in the chat about ATM genetic mutation in BRCA2. The person asking the question is BRCA1 positive and ATM positive woman. Uh, she worries about the men in her family. And would you recommend genetic testing for men with a string family history of genetic related cancer? Uh, yes, I would certainly recommend it all first degree uh, family members who want the information to undergo the undergo the testing. This include both men and women. Um, BRCA2 is more strongly associated with prostate cancer as opposed to BRCA1, but certainly um, BRCA mutations are very heritable and I would recommend they all undergo genetic testing or at least begin prostate um, uh, cancer screening probably in their early 40s. Because um, uh, the, uh, the incidence there is clearly significant and also the first development of the cancer is a lot uh, younger than you would anticipate typically. The, the problem with the asking people to get tested is you have to, they have to be willing to, you know, understand what they're going to do with the information once they obtain it. Um, 
if the person says, I don't care, and I'm never going to get a, a PSA and I don't want to get checked, then you may leave it well enough alone, but some of you would recommend the testing. Thank you. What's the benefit of uh, the shorter, I think it's CyberKnife with fewer visits versus uh, some of the treatments with radiation that can go for like 30, 45 days? Uh, both groups seem to tout their benefits. Is there an advantage for one or is it depends upon the cancer? Okay, that's a great question. I, I tackle that question quite often. So um, CyberKnife is just a form of SBRT, which stands for Stereotactic body radiation therapy. And it's defined by our government, by Centers for Medicare, um, as five treatments or fewer. So what uh, SBRT does is it contracts the dose of radiation that's given over five and a half or eight or nine weeks into five treatments. So it's very large number of treatment, I mean very large doses over a shorter period of time. Uh, initially, the data that supported CyberKnife was sponsored by the company called Accuray, which makes the CyberKnife. And the data looked fantastic and it became sort of um, a selling point for the machine. Now, um, when the CyberKnife, when the five treatment SBRT has been looked at and scrutinized, there is a higher rectal complication rate. Um, by the way, CyberKnife can only treat the prostate gland if you have intermediate or high-risk cancer where we're concerned that cells may have escaped. Uh, I don't mean spread, but may have, have escaped right outside the prostate into the seminal vesicles or into the lymph nodes where we would want to treat those. The CyberKnife cannot treat those. So uh, it is reasonable to do stereotactic radiation. Um, if you have low-risk or uh, low inter favorable intermediate risk cancer. Um, so as I mentioned, the rectal complication rate by giving these large doses each day is somewhat higher. Now, we feel that with a gel, it's called space OAR. Um, uh, it's a hydrogel that can be placed right between the prostate and the rectum, that that will significantly lower the risk of rectal complication. So I think if you have low-risk prostate cancer, where we want to treat the prostate only, whether it's CyberKnife, which is on a specific machine called a CyberKnife, or whether it's stereotactic treatment given in five, uh, five days every other day on a linear accelerator. If you have the gel that separates the prostate from the rectum, CyberKnife is a very effective, or I should say SBRT is a very effective form for treating low-risk prostate cancer. I agree, but I think we emphasize, and I think you did well, that um, you have to carefully select the individual who might go in for CyberKnife. And I, we were speaking before you guys came on about uh, the need to be a little bit sloppy in the treatment of prostate cancer if there's a concern that is locally advanced disease. The way the cancer spreads is out to the surface of the prostate and then to the regional lymph nodes, and that will occur with what we call micrometastases, which you cannot detect by any imaging technique. So if there's at any, all any concern that there are high risk features, uh, higher Gleason score, higher PSA, the cancer may already be outside the prostate, but uh, clinically invisible. And if you use very targeted therapy, you will treat uh, places where the cancer was, but not where it is right now, and end up having a recurrence further down the road. Great point, right, exactly. Okay, so are there any other questions? Okay, so I don't see any other questions. So I want to thank you doctors for your time. And we are recording this, so it will be posted on the library's YouTube channel, ebpl.org slash YouTube. And please join us next week for our talk for continuation of this Lunch and Learn series. Next week's topic will be lung cancer and the presenters will be Dr. Todd Flannery and Dr. Michael Nissenblatt. And thank you. I have a quick okay. question. Was lunch served or not? Because I'm waiting for mine. <laughs> a, it looks like it's a bring your own. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. Thanks, all right. So yeah. thank you, everyone. And...
have a wonderful rest of your day and stay safe. Thank you for joining us for this week's Encore presentation. To join us for live programs or to learn more about the East Brunswick Public Library, visit our website at ebpl.org.